Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. This is a passage that deals with the Passover, and we know that it's relevant to uh, the Lord's table because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapters 10 through 11 uh, appeals to communion meal after communion meal in the Old Testament and then draws lessons from those and says we need to be learning uh, from those Old Testament meals and how God dealt with his Old Covenant uh, people. And he not only connects Passover, which is what our passage is talking about, but he connects all of the Old Testament sacramental meals uh, together and teaches us what worthy partaking and what unworthy partaking is all about. And it actually has lessons on who can celebrate it, how you celebrate it. There's so many lessons that we can get from those Old Testament passages. So Paul says, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And last time we looked at the first 15 verses, and today I would just like to look at the first half of verse 16 says about the Levites, they stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. Now the first half of this verse indicates that what they were doing was not innovative. Okay, They followed the law of God on how they uh, administered uh, the Passover and they followed the law of God and how they dealt with people who were partaking unworthily. That is huge. That is an inspired statement that indicates we can safely look at this chapter as being a commentary on how the Passover was supposed to be celebrated in the law of God. And as you know, there's differing views of what uh, Exodus chapter 12 means. Uh, you have the Pado communion view, you've got the young credo communion view, you've got the mature communion view, and in recent years, uh, <laughs> there are some circles in Reformed um, uh, churches where there is a fourth view that's emerging uh, that says, oh, women didn't partake of Passover in the Old Testament and children didn't partake. It was only 20-year-old males and above. And actually all four of those views do extensive exegesis of Exodus chapter 12. And um, here's the problem. If the only chapter you look at is Exodus chapter 12, it's going to be hard to convince the people in the other groups that you're right or that you're wrong uh, because there's so little information in that chapter. They all make somewhat plausible arguments. And my point is that since the Levites in 2 Chronicles 30 followed the law of Moses, this chapter gives us a fantastic insight into the meaning of the law of Moses as given in Exodus chapter 12. I think it settles the debates. It gives us an inspired interpretation. And as such, I believe it supports the young credo communion uh, view very, very solidly. And it also explains why the other views never talk about this chapter. And I've read pretty extensively. Maybe there's somebody that talks about it, but I've not run across anybody that talks about this chapter. So that's the first implication of verse 16. If you want an inspired interpretation of how Passover was lawfully and unlawfully participated in, don't just read a bunch of books on Exodus 12 that are uninspired. Read the inspired commentary on what Exodus 12 was supposed to be like. That's uh, this chapter. Now there are four other implications of that first clause in verse 
16, the word for custom is mishpat, mishpat, which means justice or rule according to law. Justice or rule according to law. That's always how it's translated elsewhere. It's justice or rule according to law. So it implies authority. It's not something where individuals or families can go off and they can do their own communion meals. Uh, it, throughout the scripture, you find that communion was under the authority of uh, the church. But it also implies authority under law. In other words, these Levites could not admit to the table or exclude from the table with injustice or contrary to God's law. They themselves were under authority. And then the word mishpat has both a positive and a negative connotation. It is sometimes used negatively uh, in uh, church courts. They had to, the courts had to exercise justice. And so uh, this can be used in terms of discipline. Excluding or including in the table can be disciplined, but it's also got a positive connotation of discipleship. And so both of those are implied in this table. They're discipleship as well as discipline in the hands of the elders. There's a fourth implication. If the Levites had to serve Passover with mishpat, it means that the elders could not bar or admit to the table with too much looseness or too much rigor. Okay, It's God's law alone that admits, and we're not following justice if we fail to impose discipline or if we exercise that discipline too severely. And so the word mishpat shows both the authority that the church officers had over the meal as well as the importance of exercising that authority strictly according to God's law, not according to their own whims. And then the final implication of these two phrases is that the Passover meal had to submit to the regulative principle of worship. And let me explain what that means. I think most of you understand it, but there are two basic approaches down through history that people have taken toward worship in the church. A first approach is taken by the Roman Catholic Church and by um, uh, Lutherans. Many evangelicals follow this as well. They say that really you can use any innovation you want in the church so long as the, the Scripture does not forbid it. Okay, so they look at what does the Scripture forbid? Okay, we can do anything else within the church. The other approach that all of the Reformers held to is called the regulative principle of worship. And they say that they, while the individuals and families have total liberty, if the Bible does not forbid it, that's not true of church or state. The church or the state can only do what is explicitly and clearly laid out in the Scripture. That's the regulative principle of government, regulative principle uh, of Scripture. Now, if you hold to a strict view of the regulative principle of worship, I believe it rules out both pedo-communion as well as adult communion. It's not enough to say, where have children been barred from communion? You need to be able to prove that the children were included in the communion in the first place. And actually, that's true of circumcision, the first sacrament, uh, and baptism. The Bible has to explicitly admit them. Now, paedo-communionists believe that paedo-communion is at least implied in Exodus 12, but as I've already mentioned, there are four plausible interpretations of that chapter if you don't allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And I use the regulated principle of worship uh, when I'm debating with mature communion or the adult communion view as well. Uh, since there are numerous passages in the Old Testament that admitted little ones, 
and the young children are explicitly mentioned to the sacramental meal. In fact, the next chapter, and we won't obviously look at that today, but the next chapter says that during that year, there were children as young as three years old who came to communion. Uh, it was a minimum of three, but there were children as young as three. So that means that adult communionists have to have explicit biblical warrant for barring children until they're 12, as some do, or until they're 18, or now it's becoming popular to bar children until they're 20 years old. Now, when the Bible says little ones did partake, then they're not following the regulated principle of worship if they are barring children till they're 12 or 18 or 20 years of age. And I find it interesting that most of the modern advocates of both pedo communion and adult communion do not hold the regulated principle of worship, at least not strictly so. There are some who say they do, but very inconsistent. And let me illustrate that. Most adult communion advocates that I'm uh, familiar with are Puritan minimalists in worship who take away from several biblical commands. For example, they refuse to kneel in worship even though several times of the Bible were commanded to kneel. So are they really being regulated by that scripture? They refuse to raise their hands in worship uh, even though the Bible several times calls upon them to do so. They refuse to say a loud amen in the worship service even though the Bible calls them to do so. So I would say they're really not believing in the regulative principle of worship. They claim they are, but the regulative principle of worship says don't add to the Scripture and don't take away from the Scripture, and they're taking away quite a number of admonitions that are given in the Bible. And it also clearly shows up in their exclusion of believing little ones from communion. Now, on the other hand, if you look at the writings of the main paedo-communion authors, you will find that most of them explicitly deny the regulative principle of worship. And you can see why, because it puts a much higher burden of proof. The burden of proof is upon them uh, for admitting children. Let me just give you some examples. Steve Schlissel wrote an attack titled, All I Really Need to Know About Worship I Don't Learn from the Regulative Principle. Uh, Peter Lightheart argues that since King David innovated in the music of worship, and I absolutely reject that. He did not innovate at all. But anyway, he claims since he innovated in worship, we can innovate in worship. And uh, I have footnotes for all of this in case you want to see the references to this. But in any case, James Jordan needs to justify innovation because there are some things in his um, liturgical approach to worship you cannot find explicitly uh, in, in the Bible. Doug Wilson claims that worship is no longer regulated like it was in the Old Testament because Jesus fulfills the temple. So he ties the regulated principle to the temple, and then he says Jesus fulfills the temple. So the only application of the regulative passages is that we should not deviate from the gospel. Um, let me give you a couple of others. Uh, Greg, oh, J. Horn claims, quote, human judgment had a role to play in worship, unquote. Greg Strawbridge, while better, takes a similar position in his book on worship. And then on page 174 of James Jordan's book, The Sociology of the Church, he explicitly repudiates, he uses that word, repudiates, the regulative principle of worship. Uh, Gary North has done the same thing on more than one occasion, including his article on critical mass. And to me, it's not surprising because uh, 
to justify their practices on communion and worship requires a much higher level of proof than they are really able to sustain. It requires that we have explicit and very clear warrant in the Bible. So some of you have puzzled back and forth on the arguments, and there's some good arguments from all four different sides. And I would suggest just read all of the different passages and the arguments with the regulative principle of worship in mind. I think it'll help the lights to come on. For me, it's made it very, very clear. Well, verse 16 says that the Levites stood in their place according to Mishpat, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, if that's the case, that means everything we looked at in the first 15 verses followed the law of God. Uh, everything we're going to look at in coming weeks was according to the law of God. Making three years of age the minimum age it was according to the law of God. And I think you can see how you can explain that from Exodus chapter 12. Uh, making the sacrament a spiritual presence of Jesus rather than literally eating flesh of Jesus and blood of Jesus was according to the law of God. And, of course, Paul says the same thing. He says that they ate exactly the same sacrament that we are eating, but it was a spiritual eating. They ate spiritual food. They drank spiritual drink. And so when you look at a, a passage like 2 Chronicles 30 and 31, there's all kinds of lessons concerning communion that, that come to, to the surface that I think we need to, uh, that we need to look at. And um, so, Lord willing, next time I'm, uh, I give a communion talk, I don't know when that will be, I'll continue with the rest of verse 16 on through to verse 20. But let me just review the five applications that we've made so far. First, we saw that since the Levites followed God's law and how they administered the meal, we cannot ignore this chapter in our understanding of Exodus 12. Tim Gallant does not so much as give a single reference in his entire book to this chapter, and as a result, he makes major, major errors in his interpretation of Exodus chapter 12. Uh, second, the word mishpat implies that the Lord's table is under the authority of the Levites, not the family. Families have no authority to include or to exclude from the Passover. It's not their jurisdiction. Third, that same word implies it's a tool of discipleship and of discipline. Fourth, it's a rebuke to elders who are either too lax or too rigid in how they admit or exclude from the Lord's table. And then fifth, the two phrases of this clause demonstrate that we must approach the Lord's table in light of God's total lordship over worship, his total lordship over life. And so as we come to the table this morning, let's uh, gladly submit to his lordship. In fact, let's focus in on that one point, the regulative pr principle of worship, and say, Lord, we want to submit to your law. We want, in this sacrament, to make it our pledge that we gladly acknowledge your lordship over everything.